Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope that you'll consider, in accordance with Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donation only. If you'd like to support my work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Also, please consider my six-week online video course available at learn.tricycle.org, which offers an in-depth exploration of feeling secure in an unstable world. And finally, don't forget to check out my book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for being a friend of Dharma Punks, New York City. So, the patterns that govern our behavior in relationships, um, our attachment schema, as they're called, and they're set very early in life. Longitudinal studies show that the strange test for infants, uh, which is where a mother brings an infant into a room with a stranger, the mother then leaves the room after introducing her child to the stranger, and the way the child responds, the one-year-old, uh, the or one-and-a-half-year-old, uh, you can determine that child's attachment style. And if you then find that infant, a fully grown adult, some 25 years later, and you give that adult uh, the adult attachment interview, they will, with uh, 75 to 80 percent of the time, have the exact same attachment style. What this shows is that the events that create the patterns that we tend to repeat in relationships are inculcated very, very, very young in life. The actual events that um, between you and your caregivers uh, and the adults that were around you that influence how the people you're attracted to, your expectations in relationships, and how you react, started well before you had any conscious ability to develop lasting conscious memories, but you develop unconscious right hemispheric uh, memories, which are known as implicit memories. You can't remember when you learned how to walk, but you can walk. You can't remember when you learned how to use a spoon and feed yourself, but you can eat with a spoon or a fork. So implicit memories are memories or behaviors that we learn very early on that we no longer remember, but they are, in a sense, implicit. They're not consciously uh, driven, but they influence us, and they influence us through feelings, not through thoughts, but gut feelings. Now, this might seem like not very powerful, being influenced by how you feel, but actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The work of uh, the great neuroscientists from Ledoux to Damasio, how we act in the world is determined by how we feel. If you feel suddenly tight, your throat is contracted and your chest is tight and your belly gets tight, your emotions and your behaviors will be defensive. If, on the other hand, your shoulders relax, your belly softens, your chest muscles relax, your attention widens, then you will be in a parasympathetic nervous response, which means you'll be relaxed. You'll approach. You'll feel capable of having a wide array of emotions. If you're tight, your emotions will probably fall into the fight, flight, freeze category or the angry, sad, uh, negative emotions. So uh, another thing that's important to note is that early on in life, children essentially split their parents. Now, what does that mean? Uh, parents, caregivers, have different behaviors themselves. Even the most attentive, loving caregiver, mother, father, uh, at times they are present, attentive, emotionally mirroring. They are available. And when the child feels that the caregiver that they're with is attentive, is available, is caring, is emotionally aware of what's going on, then that child goes into the relaxed approach 
physiological state. Her body relaxes, she settles in, she can then do what's called broaden and build emotion. She can be spontaneous, she can dance, laugh, she can be intimate, she can do all kinds of things to build the relationship, and she can truly be herself. She can be totally authentic, because with the mother or father who's a present and aware and emotionally open and available, the child doesn't have to be guarded and doesn't have to change her emotions to keep the parent's interest. Are you following me? So that's what we're going to call the good parent. But not all of us are all the time available and attentive. Sometimes we're stressed out. Sometimes we are... I'm a Buddhist teacher. I got a little stressed out when the door wouldn't open. <laughs> so uh, it happens. We also can be distracted. There's times where... There's a lot of stuff going on. We have emails, texts coming in. We have uh, people seeking our attention, phone calls. There's uh, a lot of stimuli, work responsibilities. So the child at times has a parent that's either distracted. Even the best parents get distracted. Even the best parents get stressed out. And sometimes the best parents even are not available at all. They're just not present. They are not there when the child wants the parent to be there. So during these states, the child develops a different set of behaviors. Um, we will note that when the parent is, for example, uh, distracted, the child will develop false self or performances to get attention. The child will sometimes become break the rules to get attention. The child sometimes will pretend that it's sick or that there's something terribly wrong, become dramatic to get attention. The child might become conflictual and start a fight to get attention. The child might uh, become narcissistic and call attention to its achievements and even lie to uh, you know, get attention from its caregivers. I think we can guess which category our president falls into. So... That's when the caregiver is not uh, fully present, when the caregiver is distracted. When the caregiver is very stressed out or depressed or extremely emotional, the child wants to get away. The child will develop essentially disconnecting or distance-seeking behaviors. That's avoidance coping. And that's also uh, sometimes passive-aggressive silence and stuff like that to get away. And sometimes when the parent is not available, the child will develop a whole host of behaviors to become self-reliant and to give up on the relationship. Or if the parent is, hopefully this is not the case with you, but if the parent is uh, abusive, then the child will freeze, dissociate, go off into a state of fantasy where it's not, it checks out from reality, because the child can't run from an abusive parent, but it can't uh, relax, it can't even come up with a uh, false self to get love, so the child's only uh, solution is basically to space out, to go off and thought. So we're going to call that, even though it's most of those examples of the parent being distracted or stressed, doesn't mean the person is bad, but for just the sake of uh, referring to these behaviors in these states of the caregiver, we're going to call it the bad parent. So the good parent is when the parent is aware, available, emotionally attentive, soothing, uh, appreciative. And the bad parent is when the parent is distracted, stressed out, uh, scary, or unavailable. You following me? And we've noted that there are different behaviors there's good parent behaviors and there's bad parent behaviors. Well, guess what? We bring those same behaviors into adult life. And guess what? When we choose partners, we don't only choose them consciously because of the qualities that remind us of the good parent, the time that we felt loved or seen, but we also unconsciously choose people because they have some of the negative 
qualities as well. This is called what Freud called repetition compulsion. And virtually all major psychoanalytic theories show that people don't just choose their partners because they're always available, always attentive. In fact, if they were only the good parent, you wouldn't know what to do with them. Because a lot of your coping strategies and behaviors are not just for the good parent. A lot of your behaviors and the, the acts that framed your personality are also to help you manage times when people aren't available, times when people are distracted, times when people are stressed out. We all have a wide array of behaviors. Some of them allowed us to survive the bad parent. So we unconsciously choose our partners not just because of the parts that remind us of the times where we were with an attentive parent and we felt vast in love and appreciation and empathy, but we also choose partners unconsciously because from the very beginning we recognize that they have some of the challenging qualities that good old mom or dad had as well. They might be a bit abandoning, they might be a bit clingy, they might be a bit uh, emotionally prone to um, depression or anger or uh, anxiety. Uh, but unconsciously, we register some of the negatives, not while well, consciously we note the positives. We choose people not just for the good, but also for the fact that there are some of the uh, negative qualities, not so that we can only act out the entire variety of our behaviors, our coping strategies, but also because there's an underlying desire to rewrite our histories, rewrite the times we were abandoned in childhood or didn't get our needs met from our mothers or fathers. And so we unconsciously choose people that will allow us to replay the same dramas that happened in childhood. I know this is not the most fun thing to hear, but <laughs> that's just the way it is. Um, so, you know, we do have the... In our personality behaviors, we don't only have the carefree, creative, experimental, uh, uh, risk-taking. We also have the conflict avoidance, the protest behaviors, the defensiveness, the passive-aggressive qualities. And we choose partners at times to not just to act those coping or behavioral strategies out, but we also are doing it because we deep down unconsciously want to get the love and attention from the bad parent. We want our actions when our partners are unavailable, distracted, critical, cr criticizing us, we want somehow to win this time. We didn't win in childhood, but there's this hope unconsciously in adult life that we'll win, that we'll get the love we didn't Lead. And so this leads to repetition compulsion because in the first stage, in attraction stage, you meet someone and there's excitement. There's excitement for two reasons. One, because they're really present, they're paying attention, they're interested in you, and so that reminds you of the good parent. But unconsciously, you're also picking up some qualities that remind you as well of the times that you didn't get your needs met. But you're not aware of that consciously. Unconsciously, though, that is part of what makes it exciting at first. So the negative traits aren't consciously recognized. But then in the second stage of the relationship, when the dopamine fades, and suddenly with the dopamine being diminished, guess what? We start to notice those negative qualities. And when our behaviors that didn't work in childhood don't work for us in adult life, which most of the time they don't, because the child's behaviors to survive a abandoning parent or a parent who's stressed out or a parent who's not available, those behaviors are only suitable for a child. They don't work in adult relationships. So if they didn't work in childhood, they, you know, clinging, demanding, throwing a fit, uh, you know, conflict avoidance, passive aggressive, it doesn't work, right? So. Uh, when we get the, the partner that's not living up to our, you know, not the attentive 
uh, good parent partner, when we get the distracted partner or the partner who's unavailable or the partner who's engulfing with their emotion and stressed out or depressed, then we act out those early strategies. They don't work. And then we become very, very, very frustrated. Partners can wind up in a parallel relationship where they just have areas in their life where they don't get their needs met. The partners can break up. They can fall into a cycle of breaking up, reconciling, because when they reconcile, they both experience the good parts. Once again, they have the makeup sex and the excitement. So for a little while, and when they get back together, they're back with only seeing the good part of their partner. And then once again, out comes the negative qualities that were there all along. Once again, their behavioral strategies don't work. And clearly, in the second stage, the qualities that even seemed good at first now no longer seem as good. If you, for example, grew up with a father who was deeply impulsive and uh, not very good with money, and you try to compensate by, de by getting a partner who's very reliable, steadfast, uh, uh, saves their money, is not, uh, is not in any way uh, impulsive, then guess what? Those qualities can seem pretty fucking boring pretty fucking quickly. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're, you felt that one of your parents was not exciting or uh, didn't embrace life and uh, didn't run after challenges, you found your parents to be frightened, and you choose a partner who's uh, uh, impulsive, carefree, uh, likes to take risks, then guess what? That pretty quickly can also feel like they're infantile and impulsive, and those qualities aren't very fun either. So even the qualities that remind us at times of the things we wanted from our caregivers if we use that as an attraction, those will very often lead to suffering as well. Gottman says that it's defensiveness and stonewalling and being unavailable to respond to each other's bids for attention activate the most negative behaviors in us. So when we, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling, those are the big three. So if you want attention, and your partner, or you state a need, and your partner gets defensive, or your partner essentially disconnects, or your partner criticizes your needs, these are the big uh, apocalyptic, in Gottman's words, uh, actions that will activate our own protests, behaviors, passive-aggressive behaviors, avoidance coping, and so forth. I can tell you that I've done couples work. I try to avoid it now like the plague, it's very, very challenging in my counseling. I pretty much now try to only work with individuals, but for a number of years I did. And one of the things I found that when uh, couples come in, they very often believe that they want to heal the relationship, but I find that very often they secretly desire me to validate each of their belief. Guess what their beliefs are? The other one is to blame. See him, see her over there, they're the problem. So even though consciously at first they believe that they're going into therapy or counseling or working with a Buddhist uh, chaplain teacher, they, you know, they believe they're going in there to fix, but really deep down inside they wanted me to say, you know, you're right. He really is a pain in the ass. And they dream of me saying, yeah, to him, you're abandoning, you're, you don't appreciate what you have, or vice versa. So, uh, and another quality that's very common is that people really believe that their partners were withholding, you know, secreting away some really negative quality that only in the relationship that they brought out. Well, I hate to break it to you, if you've ever had this idea, unconsciously you were aware of that all the time, 
all the way through. They weren't hiding it, it's just that you only unconsciously noted it. And consciously, uh, most of your life, you don't judge people, bosses, friends, by the first interactions. But for some reason, in relationships, we tend to just go by those initial impressions and we're willing to overlook what is actually pretty apparent when we reflect in hindsight, what was always available, we just didn't see it. It's not that they were hiding it from us. It's simply that we were so excited by the positive qualities, the good parent qualities, that we only unconsciously noted the other qualities. So what allows us to change or heal a relationship, if, if indeed you want to do the work. Well, the first I found is that we need to give each other the good parent when we're working on the relationship. We need to give each other the good parent. What's the good parent again? That's the attentive, available, emotionally listening parent, the parent that is present. If we give each other the abandoning, the, or what Gottman calls the stonewalling or critical or uh, uh, defensive parent, then there'll never be any progress. So in the work we do together, we have to go back and give each other the good parent experience, which is empathy, appreciation, and uh, uh, compassion, basically. How does that look? How do we work on it? Well, the first way is the vast majority of healing involves learning how to communicate. So uh, in much of the communication that happens in a broken or a relationship that's not working very well, couples, each partner will talk over each other or they'll interrupt each other. That's one problem. But the second issue is that they won't validate the emotions that the other is experiencing. You might not agree with the truth claims that they're making. They might say, for example, you never ever show up when you say you're going to show up, and you might not agree with that, but if you get into an argument about the facts and we don't validate the under or acknowledge the underlying emotion, which is, okay, I hear that you are feeling I'm not paying attention to how important the relationship is, or I'm not paying attention to time, you're feeling a sense that I'm not always caring enough about this partnership. So you don't, we don't have to agree with everything our partners say, but it's essential for the health of a relationship to n note the emotions and to validate the emotions. Nobody's emotions are wrong. Sure, they can get facts wrong, but nobody's emotions are wrong. That's what they're feeling. So in mindful dialogue, which is a Buddhist strategy that works exceptionally well in couples therapy, what we do is we note, as the Buddha instructed, the feelings and emotions that are going on beneath what people are saying. We're not just listening to the words anymore or the statements. We're actually hearing, underlying the feelings that are going on. So this is important to know. Feelings are in the body. They're in the tone of voice. They're nonverbal. The verbal component, which is statements or words, is left hemispheric. But the body language the feelings, the tone of voice, the shifting, the facial expressions, those are what we pay attention to much more if we want to heal the relationship. And we start acknowledging that to each other. It's essential in these dialogues to give each other uh, a sacred space where they can speak without ever being interrupted. And so in our meditation in a little while, we're going to be working on how to do that, how to be able to listen and stay calm while people are saying things that we don't want to hear. But that's essential to be the ability to not only be able to hear, but be able to grasp what our partner is feeling while we listen. So it's essential to give the other 
person who's speaking their time, there, allow them their, uh, the attention and not interrupt, then we, uh, the second part of the mirroring dialogue or the external mindfulness approach is we repeat back what we heard, just the statements, the, the verbal component that they said, we repeat back. What I heard you say is that I'm never on time. We don't repeat in using the exact same words because that doesn't mean we've actually heard. You have to use different words, but you have to repeat back essentially what the other, your partner is saying. And then we state what we, emotion we heard and we ask them if that's accurate. So we said, I, when you were speaking about me always being late or not showing up when I say I'm going to show up, we, what I heard in you was a sense of frustration. Is that right? And then hopefully our partner says, yes, that's what I was feeling. When that happens, when we are capable of repeating back what we heard and getting the emotion right, then it's our turn. So then we say, okay, this is what I've been feeling of late. I feel blah, blah, blah. It's important to acknowledge the subjectivity. The more we make truth claims, you never that tends to trigger other people and makes it more difficult for them to listen and repeat back and mirror. So it's important to use language that is subjective. I feel right now that you want constant validation and reassurance and I'm not always that available. I need space at times. And the partner has to say, okay, what I'm hearing is that you think you're finding my uh, demands for attention and reassurance is a little bit much and I heard in your voice a sense of being crowded and maybe a little bit stressed or angry and your partner goes yes. In that dialogue suddenly both partners have given each other the good parent and have created once again the safety and the connection that allows, once again, to broaden and build emotions and the closeness to start being reactivated. It's a strategy that's used throughout both Gottman, Imago, attachment. It's, um, it's pretty much practiced everywhere. And if you go into, in your life, any couples therapy, I guarantee you the first thing you'll learn is mirroring dialogue. How to listen, how to repeat back, and how to validate what your partner is feeling. Eventually, we can move on to another technique I'll talk about very briefly, but before that, I need one volunteer. This is going to be fun, so don't be shy. Hi. So I want you to pretend that I'm somebody in your life that, you have, uh, that you're disappointed with, and I want you to tell me how you, what you're feeling. You can make it up. It doesn't have to be real. I am feeling um, uh, attacked and blamed uh, for what happened. For what happened. So I could then say, I don't know why you're feeling attacked and blamed. I'm not ever attacking you. In fact, you attack me all the time. <laughs> now, do you feel heard when I say that? No. Okay. But on the other hand, if I say, okay, what I'm hearing is you're feeling attacked and blamed by me for an event that uh, was disappointing, and the emotion I'm hearing is one of a little bit of sadness and a little bit of maybe confusion and maybe also frustration that this is happening. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> How does that feel as opposed to the first? Yeah. <laughs> so that's all it is. It's simply repeating back what you've heard. That doesn't mean you agree with it. It doesn't mean you agree with it. It simply means we repeat back what we've heard, and then we simply name the emotion so that we understand how our partners are feeling. That's all it is. But in, in doing that, in dialogues, we rebuild the initial experience of attention and interest and appreciation that were the initial attraction in the relationship and we restore some of the intimacy. 
It's a lot of work. Sometimes in mirroring dialogues, there are people that cannot repeat back what you said or note the emotion. Sometimes in a mirroring dialogue, someone will always hear you as being attacking or harsh. And that's because very often if somebody grew up with an extremely uh, overbearing or hypercritical caregiver, then they will have a proclivity or an emotional tendency, right brain pattern of hearing any challenging conversation as attacking. And so in those situations, it requires, sometimes it requires a lot of patience, sometimes it even requires a willingness to go into a therapeutic environment. Sometimes that's an indication if somebody only hears as if you're attacking or in some way unsafe when you're relaxed and you feel your body relaxed and you don't feel your tones loud. It can mean that uh, an individual has had a early life trauma that uh, has left a distorted perception of any situation or any challenging conversation. Just note that not all the time people can mirror back what they've heard. Very often, if we have the mirroring dialogue, there might not be any noticeable change in behavior for a while. But that doesn't mean that the intimacy and movement won't be happening in the relationship. Because very often change happens at a gradual incremental pace. And so if we, you know, for example, if we say, um, you know, I feel that you're never prioritizing this relationship. You're always going after any opportunity or fun thing and that I feel like I'm competing with a million different people for your attention. And then if your partner says, I, what I hear you're saying is you don't feel prioritized, you don't feel important, and I hear that that feels a little sad and that feels like it's disappointing. And you say yes. And then they might continue to be distracted or follow up on other people's events. But at the very least, you will feel more connected because at least now your emotions are not unheard. And the more you do that, the more you have this practice in place over time, nobody, if you're in a relationship at all where the person cares about you, eventually they won't want you. They understand that it's making you feel sad or frustrated or disappointed. They're not going to want you to be in that. And so they'll incrementally start changing. Most of the work in any kind of couple's work is essentially just establishing this communication tool. The second strategies that are used, I'll just name this briefly and then we'll go into the meditation, is incremental change or what I call leaning, which is when there are a bunch of behaviors that each, per each partner is feeling really irritating, like one partner is not paying the bills and another partner is leaving their stuff all over the place, has a different idea of what's tidy and or clean, etc. One partner needs to go out more at night. One partner just wants to stay in. So each person makes a bunch of requests, generally three to five requests. And then each partner chooses one to start with. And they acknowledge that one that they're going to gradually, not all at once change, they're going to gradually, incrementally, slowly work on leaning into a behavior that's a little bit more uh, adaptive or at least a little bit more acceptable to their partner. So the person who um, doesn't, hasn't in the past paid their bills in time says, okay, I hear that. I'm going to start working on it. I'm going to now have a day where I look at the bills and I start writing checks. It might not be as quickly as you like, but I'll now have a system in place. And then the other partner says, okay, when it comes to cleaning up, I realize that uh, we do have a difference, so I will start doing X, a little bit more. It's incremental, and each partner, the other partner's job is when somebody's leaning is to note, not note the times they forget, not note the fact that they're not moving as fast, but to note and, and bring attention, positive attention, to even the slightest bit of incremental change. Because 
believe it or not, people are not motivated by criticism or attack. They tend to avoid and retreat, but people are very much motivated by positive attention. So incremental leaning change is another strategy that's very often worked. So I hope that that was in some way interesting. Um, now I'm going to lead you on a meditation that develops distress tolerance so that we can be in difficult conflict conversations that we sometimes avoid. And uh, I should note that one of the reasons why couples stay it locked in to really maladaptive patterns is due to conflict avoidance where they don't sit and have these mirroring dialogues where they really listen and talk about difficult issues. And the reason we avoid difficult conversations is not only because we're frightened of how our partners might react. They might be, they might freak out, they might become dramatic, they might become angry, they might whatever. But one of the main reasons we avoid difficult conversations is because we're frightened of how we will feel during those conversations. So it's crucial to be able to show that ourselves that we can stay present and relax and not be triggered as much by individuals when we're having difficult dialogues. And also that we'll be able to relax enough so that we'll be able not only to hear the words that other people say, but we'll also be able to hear the emotions that people are conveying. So close the eyes and find a really comfortable seated position. So let's see if we can land right now in life, which means return to that state of body and being when we've reached a destination that we really always look forward to? What's that feeling when you get out of work and there's a three-day weekend ahead or a vacation? or That feeling you get when you're, you've reached that desired spot on the beach or hammock in a mountain or sitting by a lake in a park or you know stretched out on that beach blanket what makes those moments so truly wonderful is that we allow ourselves to one physically relax we find that the body eases all the stress we carry around in the body we pay attention to and we relax the body in some way. So let's do a little bit of that. Take a nice in-breath like you're, you're checking out the aroma of a candle and while you do that lift your shoulders. You're breathing in the candle and then as you breathe out the candle drop the shoulders. That's great. And then another candle you're smelling and you're pulling in your belly. And then as you blow out the candle, drop, relax, soften the belly. And then for the third in-breath, you can squinch any muscle groups you like, the face or the fists or buttocks or toes. Just squinch a bunch of muscles, tight, 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 and then breathe out and relax. Relaxing the body is one of the two ways we land in life. And the second way is we let go of thoughts that mental movies, as it were, that cause stress, that pull us away from life, from appreciating life. Those plans and rehashed conversations, the unresolved issues, all of the inner narratives that essentially pull us away from appreciating 
a moment, our time, we are willing when we reach those wonderful points in our life where we land, we let go of all that. We're just willing to say, not now. When you've reached the first day of a vacation and you get maybe a work email or something, if you are really happy, you don't read it, you don't click it, you just put it away. If you're on a a favorite place where you go to relax and somebody starts buzzing the phone or texting, you don't look, you just stay present. So it's the same with internal stimuli, with inner thoughts. You don't pick them up. And instead what you do is we bring all our attention to the sensations that are available to us, just like when we're lying in the grass in a park and it's a beautiful day and you're just feeling a breeze and the sense of your body sinking into the grass and you feel the sun on your body and you relax into the earth. And you don't think about unresolved business. You just stay with all of those sensations. And you feel your body breathing. So do all of that right now. Hear the sounds drifting in from the street, the cars, the traffic. Feel the contact your body's making with your sit bones and buttocks with the cushion, your hands on knees or legs or locked together. Feeling your body breathing. Just appreciating all the stimuli that's present, external and internal. You've reached that special time in your life where you can Let go of everything that isn't present and just enjoy what is actually present. You can see the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. And of course, those nagging messages from other regions in the brain, those text messages as thoughts. Think about me. Pay attention to this. They'll come and some of them will be so persuasive, those thoughts you'll, before you realize it, you'll climb aboard. And just like sometimes clinking on a link, your entire mind or desktop will be filled with made-up images, fantasies. So when a mental movie gets activated, you've clicked on one of the thoughts, just release and relax. You don't have to go anywhere. The present is all around you. You don't have to bring the mind anywhere. You're surrounded by this moment, the actual sensations. So just just click out of, turn off. That browser window in the mind and just return to reality and just feel good that you're waking up. Waking up or enlightenment simply means becoming present. With an awareness that's relaxed and peaceful. So we'll sit here in silence for a while and then we'll move on to the second part of the meditation.
So at this point, take a moment to check in with the first three foundations of mindfulness, which are how you're breathing and your body in general feels. That's the first. So does your body feel good and comfortable? And is your breath relaxed? Or is your breath shallow? Is your breath rapid or slow? Does your body feel tight or... Because what does it feel like? And then take a scan of how you feel, which is generally falls into three qualities, the Buddha said. We can either feel comfortable in a situation, wanting to be to have more of it. I like the way this feels. I want to feel this way more. Or we can have not any response, a neutral, neither good nor bad. Or that we can feel uncomfortable. We can feel like we don't like what's happening, that we want things to change or be different, that we're not relaxed. So feeling good and comfortable, feeling neutral or feeling uncomfortable, most of this is conveyed by your body when we're in a relaxed state where the shoulders are released and the belly is soft and the chest doesn't feel too tight and the jaw isn't locked and we feel good and we're willing to have more of an experience. On the other hand, if suddenly the body clenches, the stomach gets really tight and the jaw locks and the micro muscles around the eyes get tight and the chest starts to contract and the shoulders lock up around the ears and that's a negative feeling. And if you don't know whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable, it's a neutral feeling. And then the third quality we're going to use the third foundation, we're not going to use all four. The third foundation is what is the mood that's going on in your mind? Does your mind feel present or distracted? Does it feel angry? Is it craving something? Does it feel jumpy and scattered? Or does it feel relaxed and spacious? What's the quality of the mind? Does the mind feel very tight or very open? Does the mind feel overwhelmed and stressed or just very peaceful and available? So those are the three qualities we'll be working with in the second part of the meditation. I'd like you to Bring to mind a conversation you've been avoiding happen, having. A conversation with someone that you suspect might be unpleasant. Difficult someone who doesn't perhaps even listen very well. So visualize yourself there, having this difficult conversation. Visualize, if you can, if you can visualize in your mind, just visualize what this individual might look like. Even imagine what they might say. Just keep that image present, but while it's present, look or observe your body and see if you can return your body to the relaxed, 
approach state of being present, those states that we did at the beginning of the meditation where we relaxed the shoulders, we softened the belly, we took deep in-breaths and long out-breaths, where we relaxed the muscles in the face, and where we put aside any of our preconceptions or thoughts and we just stayed present. So while you're visualizing yourself in this difficult conversation, see if you can still, using your ability to influence your body, relax your breath, relax your shoulders, soften your belly, Release any clenching in the jaw. Put aside those distracting, repetitive thoughts, the agendas, the outrage, and just stay present. You can relax your body and your breath. You can be with someone having virtually any emotion degree of reactivity you can stay with if you don't add the eternal stress. The conflicts we avoid, the people we avoid, are not so much because we're scared only of what they'll do, but also because we're scared of how we'll feel. So see if you can learn how to relax, soften, develop what's called distress tolerance. The ability to stay with the difficult without running, avoiding, shutting down, fighting, being defensive, just staying relaxed and present. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and see if you can bring with you this mindful state where you've connected with your breath, your feelings, and your mood. If you can maintain awareness of these implicit messages from the right brain, you not only will make more authentic choices in life, but you'll be able to essentially work with these signals and learn how to stay present and relaxed even in situations in the past that caused stress. <laughs> 